You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Robert Shear is the editor-in-chief of TruthDig.com, a 2007 Webby Award winner for the best political blog. He's a contributing editor to The Nation, a syndicated columnist based at the San Francisco Chronicle, and a host for Left, Right, and Center. His new book is The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijacked 9-11 and Weakened America. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thank you. You know, something that publisher left out, but it's actually my day job, is I am uh, a professor at the University of Southern California, and so... I, I deal with about 600 students a year, or 550, 600 students a year, trying to get through some of this material. So, And that's at the Annenberg? Uh, yeah, it's the Annenberg School. And it's funny because that's where I really put a lot of effort into it, and it never gets mentioned in my bio. Or, you know, so. Well, we've got it right. right up front. This new book of yours starts in a really surprising place with you talking with a man that I would suspect you'd never have a civil conversation with. Could you tell us a little bit about that conversation? How did it come to pass? Well, you're talking about Richard Milhouse Nixon, and um, it's interesting, you know, I, I certainly uh, regarded Nixon as a war criminal, and, uh, you know, didn't have a soft spot in my heart for him, and, and particularly because I did credit him with the opening to China and with detente, and also a, a number of, uh, of good domestic programs. I mean, Moynihan, uh, Patrick Moynihan, who later, you know, was later a very progressive senator, worked for him, and he had believed in a guaranteed annual income. He supported the first environmental legislation. Uh, so, you know, uh, but still, I, I, I felt there was such an enormous contradiction between the opening to China, getting along with Mao Zedong, you know, some pretty bloody communist dictators, and getting along with the Soviet Union, which was, you know, bristling with arms and everything. You could have detente with those guys, but somehow you're going to punish Vietnam because they're communists. You know, who are they threatening? And these people, you know, I knew quite a bit about the place. I'd been there, you know, as early as 64 and wrote a lot about it. I said, what the hell? You know, uh, you allowed to say hell? I forgot. No, uh, okay. This is the, isn't it, wasn't this Carlin's routine or what are the seven words? The seven can't? words. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll try not to use them. But, you know, what the heck were they you know, what, what, you know, this was a primitive country. I've been in Cambodia. It was in Laos. It was, in, you know, all, all around Vietnam. What are they talking? And this is before they sent the half million troops. This was, you know, between the flood control advisors that Kennedy has sent. And uh, then you had, you know, more, some increase in troops. But, you know, what are, what are they talking about? And I remember the first inkling of this. I was up in Angkor Wat looking at the ruins there. Fabulous, you know, reminder of how old these civilizations are and how old their history and you know every time we think we have to make their history for them you know so you know here is Cambodia with its incredibly rich complex history and I'm up there and I run into a guy who I assume was you know CIA guy or something but he was an American embassy guy and he said oh that's great well, I'm, I, I rushed up here because I'm afraid this is not going to be around in a few months I said what are you talking about <laughs> it's been here for so many centuries and he said uh he said well you know the bombing will probably spread and you know and so he said I wanted to catch it, you know, now, you know, and I thought, well, on the one hand, he's at least sensitive to the his antiquities. On the other hand, he's b willing to be party to obliterating them. And, and and it was really a shock to me because Cambodia, and I got in trouble with some of my leftist friends. Uh, uh, this is a long-winded answer to your question, but I don't care, you know. Uh, um, uh, the, um, 
Uh, a lot of my leftists were upset about a piece I wrote from Cambodia uh, for Ramparts magazine. It was called A Letter from Non Pen. And I said, this is a country, Cambodia, that does not need social change unless they want it. Leave them alone. Don't meddle. You know, the fruit hangs low on the tree and it drops just when it's ready to be eaten. The, the, the Prince Sihanouk, he plays Charlie Mingus, you know, in jazz on his saxophone. I mean, it's just the whole place is underpopulated. It, it's wonderful. And if they want to modernize, fine. But, you know, don't do it for them. And, you know, and these people have experience the blessings of the West in terms of French colonialism and everything and leave them alone. Well, of course, we never left them alone. We insisted on dragging them into the Vietnam War and uh, lying about this whole Ho Chi Minh Trail crap and everything, and, and you know, which I had spent quite a bit of time investigating. And so I, I just, it was sort of a, a wake-up call for me on how much evil can come out of good intentions. This is actually before Halberstam wrote his Best and the Brightest, but I was very much influenced by Graham Greene, the novelist, who, his book, The Quiet American, but also his other books, The Power and the Glory, and, you know, Our Man in Havana and all that. Uh, and uh, basically, Graham Greene's message, and I think he was pretty much a conservative Catholic guy, Graham Greene, but uh, his message was, we don't know these people, we don't know what's best for them, and we're not disinterested, and we're bumblers, and uh, we will kill them. We'll get them killed. And that's, of course, what happened in very large numbers. So I don't exonerate Nixon for escalating that war. He didn't start it. It was a Democrat's war, something to remind people now that we're all, you know, once again hopeful about a Democratic candidate um, who unfortunately will not at this moment talk about cuts in the military budget and probably end up wearing three American flags on his lapel to one-up McCain. But nonetheless, we are, I think Barack Obama, you know, I, I like a very attractive candidate and appeals a lot to me. I like the fact that he thinks out loud and, you know, I have every intention of voting for him and so forth. But fact is, he won't cut the military budget, nor will McCain. And so here we have, we're at a point where, uh, you know, we're going to talk about improving domestic life and where you're going to get the money. So I'll, I'll revisit that one. But looking back at, at the Democrats of the 60s, that reminds me that we were, the Democrats were the war party. I even said we. We Democrats were the war party. And, um, you know, Nixon came along and he showed every promise of ending this, ending this. And, uh, you know, he wrote an article for Foreign Affairs in 1968 in which he in said, you know, communism is not internationalist. The Cold War is basically uh, 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 rooted in a, a fallacy of sort of a unified international communist movement that threatens us. He said, in fact, it's nationalist. He, you know, there was Tito in Yugoslavia. The Sino-Soviet dispute has been longstanding. And so he said, we can do business with these people. And this is where the neocons come from. It really was largely a movement in reaction uh, to Nixon's detente. Nixon had learned a great deal at the knee of Eisenhower, who I dedicate the book to, along with George McGovern. And, uh, you know, so, but I didn't think so highly of Nixon when he was in office because, as I say, he escalated the war in Vietnam, which made no sense if you're getting along with China and Russia. Why are you so freaked out about uh, Vietnam? And uh, he got a lot of people killed, millions of Indo-Chinese. Uh, McNamara says 3.4 million altogether, and a couple of million at least uh, were done on, on Nixon's watch. He escalated uh, the bombing into Cambodia, got another 30,000 Americans. So I, I think he qualifies as a major war criminal. I'm not disputing that. But nonetheless, his worldview um, was quite plausible and predicted really what happened. I mean, predicted the emergence of communist rule China as it is today and communist rule Vietnam as it is today. And we suffered the most ignominious defeat we've ever had in, in Vietnam. Nonetheless, 
thus far, and, and not, uh, hopefully ever, because that's why I'm writing books and speaking to you, so I'm trying to uh, avoid such disasters. But, um, you know, nonetheless, here are these two communist uh, powers that we couldn't defeat, uh, and what do they do? They don't go around conquering oil-rich lands. They don't go around seizing territory. Uh, they, in fact, uh, went to war with each other. That was the first uh, strategic consequence of, of our losing in Vietnam is that the two communist countries, one was supposed to be a surrogate of the other, went to war over, you know, China had been for a thousand years uh, dominated uh, Vietnam, and they were fi still fighting about border issues and islands. To this day, they're still fighting about these bloody little islands that are worthless. And, uh, you know, so they went, they went to war. And so, and, and by the way, it goes to this question of who are these experts, you know, these Absolute. Are you allowed to say asshole? Uh, you, I think you should. <laughs> uh, or I, my son, well, my younger son once, when he was very young, said the bad A word with a hole. The bad word. But I mean, a guy like Richard Holbrook, who's a major, you know, uh, advisor. I have a sore point about that because the New York Times has had made a decision not to review my book. Like, there's a lot of books on the military-industrial complex out there, I guess. But and yet, you know, who do they have doing the big review of their book review section this weekend? Was Richard Holbrook? Well, Holbrook is in my book, uh, and I attack Holbrook uh, very pointedly because he he supported. Uh, getting a coalition back in power in Cambodia after Pol Pot was kicked out by the Vietnamese, you know, and, and uh, so, you know, wh where's his expertise, you know, here's a guy who supported the Vietnam War, and not only that, supported actually uh, trying to reverse the overthrow of Pol Pot, and yet, you know, he's a Democrat and very likely will end up a major player in a Democratic administration, supported the Iraq War, and, and so forth. So, you know, when I, the reason I wrote the piece about uh, Nixon is, I don't believe in, you know, it's the bad guys who do the bad stuff. Uh, I, I think that uh, most of the mischief is done by people who don't appear very bad. And uh, when they really appear bad, you know them, you stay away from them, you reject them, they, you know, they're, they're dripping their venom. Uh, but, but most of the mischief comes from people who present quite well. Nixon didn't present very well, but... When I look back, Reagan was in, in office. That's when I wrote the piece. It was in the mid-'80s. Reagan was in office, and I was just thinking, interesting. When are we ever going to take another look at Richard Nixon? And so I wrote a long piece for the L.A. Times, and I pointed out everything that I've said to you here, you know, and, and I described his foreign policy and so forth. And he hadn't consented to an interview, but, you know, I'd look back at the record and everything. And, uh, you know, and I decided, you know, I mean, aside from Vietnam, which is a very big aside, I'm not exempting that, and aside from his assault on our civil liberties, I'm in a program tomorrow night with Daniel Ellsberg, who, you know, <laughs> Nixon very much tried to destroy, so I'm not, you know, forgiving him a blank check on that, but in the main, and certainly compared to Reagan, he looked like a real moderate, and compared to George W. Bush, he looks like a flaming liberal, certainly on a domestic issue, and so anyway, I was very surprised when I got a letter from Richard Nixon thanking me for what he called my very, your very objective coverage of my activities. He didn't take issue with a single thing I had said in this long article, and I was pretty rough at, at different points. And he offered, uh, made an offer that I could come see him in New York. So I did. And the reason I begin the Pornography of Power book with Richard Nixon is this kind of goes to a, a main theme of mine that I've pushed in other books and that is that we, we should not make the assumption that there are adults watching the store. We should not make the assumption that the thing being, not confuse the thing being sold with the thing itself. 
you know, American foreign policy in, in my adult lifetime has had, had next to nothing to do with spreading democracy, freedom, limited government, preserving human rights or anything else. It's just a joke. And, and, and the sad thing about the last 50 years of history is that the tyrants end up being uh, as often a, as we are on the right side of things. You know, we supported Batista, the Russians end up supporting Castro. I prefer Castro to Batista. You know, we're against uh, Hugo Chavez now. I prefer Chavez to anybody who's ever run Venezuela. I mean, well, for all his faults, the guy's trying to spread around some of the oil money to poor people. Now, no one's ever done that, as far as I know, uh, maybe in the whole world. Has anyone ever done what, what Chavez is trying to do now? Uh, you know, I know a lot of people don't feel that way. I, we had a very critical piece on, on Chavez that Mark Cooper did for Truthdig. Uh, um, I realize the guy's got his failings, but my goodness, you know, for the U.S. now to be demonizing Chavez, who is, you know, actually showing something of a model of, of what to do with your oil wealth, that, you know, rare in that respect. So when I look back on the last 50 years of U.S. adventures and, and so forth, they weren't any better, actually quite often worse than the Soviets or, or what other people were doing. So then where's the virtue of separation of powers, uh, limited government, free press, all of these things. Where, where is it? And I've come to the conclusion uh, that if you're going to follow an imperial policy, uh, those things don't mean anything. They're not a restraint. And uh, th this is why the founders warned us that you should, if you want to have a republic, you can't have an empire. This was the basic demarcation between the old and the new world. That if you get into these foreign inventions, the foreign entanglements Jefferson won about, the foreign engagements Washington won about, you fall under, under the prey of what, in, in my book I quote George Washington in his farewell address, saying the impostures of pretended patriotism. Uh, you, you don't have an informed citizenry. When you are dealing with international intrigue and adventure and so forth, the truth takes an exit. A and, uh, and this is what has always happened. And so all of the restraints we have, that, which I think are very meaningful, they don't work once you're in a war situation. And n n that's what my book is all about. It's why I call it The Pornography of Power. And, and what is pornographic about it? Because it has nothing to do as you know, lap dance with real sex. This expenditure of this money, where we now spend more than the rest of the world combined, we spend more than we ever have in real dollars since World War II, more than during the Vietnam and Korean War, in, in real inflation-adjusted dollars, uh, has nothing to do with security. Nothing. We're fighting an enemy whose arsenal can be purchased at Home Depot. They use $4, you know, three, $4 box cutters, knives, a little bit of tear gas spray. So it's a joke. A and we're building all these weapons to fight an enemy that doesn't exist. You can't do it with a straight face. Uh, so that's what's pornographic about it. And, and all these pundits that talk about it, I have a whole chapter basically attacking Thomas Friedman, who I think is sort of the worst of the lot. You know, they, they all come on as very serious people, you know, and we're seriously concerned with issues of national security and everything, but it's, it's bogus. It's bogus. You know, and, and there was no better proof of it to my mind. Here's Thomas Friedman, the, probably the most admired pundit in print, you know, and we're all supposed to be freaked out that the Great old newspapers might be going under to the internet. Doesn't freak me out at all. But but you know, uh, you know, and here's Thomas Friedman who supported the uh, Iraq invasion, and and then he, first he said, well they'll find the WMDs, and then when they couldn't find them, he said, well it doesn't matter. Saddam Hussein himself is a WMD. Now if you're teaching in a graduate school or anything, and somebody gives you an answer like that, you, you say you you know would you maybe you should consider another line of work. You know, I mean, we mean something very specific about weapons of mass destruction. We mean about the prospect of ending civilization, life on this earth. 
let's not kid about this. That's what it means. If we, you know, we have a lot of these weapons out there, and if that had been a primitive nuclear weapon in, in Manhattan, uh, not only would have destroyed uh, Manhattan and commerce in America and a good deal of our intellectual and media activity, but we wouldn't be a democracy now. There's no question about it. If you look at the overreaction to 9/11. Uh, you know, an attack, dramatic as it was, that only resulted in the the loss of 3,000 lives. Can you just imagine if it had been 300,000 or larger and the whole uh, center of of New York was unusable because of radiation? So, you know, we don't kid around about weapons of mass destruction. We have a lot of them floating around the world. We just had a B-52 floating around the United States with live ones, you know. There are thousands of these things. It's a serious issue, the whole question of nuclear proliferation. Here's this guy, Thomas Friedman, writes a a column in the New York Times. Saddam Hussein himself was a WMD. You know, well, he wasn't. It's absolute garbage. So, so what does language mean? What does analysis mean? What does thought mean? If you can get away with a statement like that. And he did. He did. You know, um, I'll give you a more recent one that's ticked me off this morning. I'm just about to write a column about it. Uh, you know, we have this air tanker deal. Finally, McCain did one thing right. He came out against the mid-fuel air tanker. You know, there's a chapter in my... Mm-hmm. I should keep mentioning the book, or nobody will buy it. Pornography, a power book. And I, I actually say some nice things about McCain there because thanks to McCain, the chief financial officer of Boeing and the top procurement officer in the Air Force went to federal prison, and the C- CEO of Boeing had to resign. So right now we have this crazy situation where the Democratic National Committee attacks McCain for having threatened the jobs of Boeing workers. Uh, Boeing is now getting this contract again, it seems. And so the gas the stations in the sky? Gas stations in the sky. Uh, we don't have enough problem with the gas stations on the ground. We've got to put them up in the well, sky, too. Well, what's so interesting about this, I'll give you a, a, a hope I get to write my column but, but, uh, today, but this is what I was going to say. Uh, uh, and and that what's so interesting is if you research this, where did this idea come from for these tankers? It came from Curtis LeMay. You never heard of him? Oh, yeah, Curtis LeMay. Okay. Yeah, he, he really Are wasn't we on he again? the basis for the general in and, uh, and the Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove, the clean right. bodily fluids guy. Yeah, okay. So Curtis LeMay had this idea, you know, which, by the way, has been rejected by commercial aircraft that, you know, is stupid and you have to have a whole other feet. And, you know, why don't you just land and put on your gas and then take off? The only reason for it is if, if in terms of the old triad, triad of, of uh, nuclear weapons. So remember the Soviets in mutual assured destruction, MAD, was the policy. The Soviets may launch a, a first strike against us and take out our land-based missiles. Then we had the second uh, part of the tri- triad, triad uh, which was the Navy-based uh, missiles on the subs and so forth. And if they got that, which was not going to happen, uh, then we had these bombers in the air. And the bombers had to be up there 24-7 because it could happen at any moment, right? And it started with the B-52s, and then they became the B-1 and the B-2s, okay? And so he, uh, Curtis LeMay, uh, was the one who you know, said, wait, we have to do, you know, there's this crazy idea of refueling on a plane, but we have to get behind it. We get behind it, figure out how to do it, you know, and so forth with the boom, you know, goosing the plane and, and so forth. Now... The Soviet Union is over, you know. Uh, George Bush's father in '92 said, you know, Cold War's over. We can have this big cut in defense. But here we, I pick up the New York Times the other day, and they have this business article. The Wall Street Journal had three columns on its front page. The New York Times had it leading its business page. The Boeing contract is back in play. And this is, they said, a $35 billion contract, but destined to become a $100 billion, you know, meaning it's a $100 billion contract because these things never get turned off and, and they'll be produced forever. $100 billion to build this new tanker. 
and McCain had criticized the old leasing program, and, and, and then they show a picture of it. And what does the picture show? It shows this plane refueling, what, a B-2 stealth bomber. Well, what the hell is the value of a B-2 stealth bomber except to drop nuclear weapons on the old Soviet Union, which doesn't exist? So this is absolutely goofy. The B-2 bomber is a very inefficient plane. Remember, its stealth covering came off in the rain. It was, you know, uh, has all kinds of technical problems. But, you know, we're going to keep that thing refueled. Why? Because, you know, even in the old mad idea, it was nutty. Why would a pilot, who, knowing that his country has been wiped out, right, because there's been a first strike, knowing that uh, this, the Soviet Union has been wiped out because there's been the response of whatever survived of our land-based missiles plus our, our sea-based force. He's now up there. To be doing, and if he sees some cockroach moving or something, he's going to destroy it. Why would he destroy it instead of embracing it? Hey, there's life left on the planet. What, what, I'm going to uh, drop my nuclear bombs and obliterate it? You know, where am I going to land? You know, who am I going to hook up with? I mean, how am I going to eat? You know, so the whole thing was nutty from the beginning. So here we now have, in this post-Cold War period, in the name of fighting terrorists, who, as I say, don't even have a, a glider or anything, you know, a helicopter, we are going to spend $100 billion, $100 billion, not on the subprime mortgage scandal, not on levies to stop flooding, not on education, not on translators, not on body armor, not on anything that makes some sense, we're going to spend it on a gas station in the sky, okay? And then these, these hawks pretend like, oh, it all makes perfect sense. You know, so you had, as I have in my book, Richard Pearl, uh, who started out with Scoop Jackson in opposition Prince to Richard Darkness, Nixon, you call Prince of Darkness. I, I didn't invent that term. It's how he was commonly referred to when he worked for, for Scoop Jackson. You know, and here's Pearl writes this big column in the Wall Street Journal saying, you know, only some green eye shade mentality bureaucrat in the Pentagon would oppose it. They all opposed it. It made no sense at all. The Pentagon was against this weapon. That's why they had to lobby and bribe and everything to get it going. And, and uh, he, you know, but he doesn't tell the readers, nor does the Wall Street Journal evidently know, that he got $20 million from Boeing in investment in his venture capital firm. These people have no shame. Absolutely no shame. That's why I say it's pornographic. They worry about their career, whether they're the journalists, whether they're the lobbyists, whether they're politicians. They're worried about re-election. They're worried about profit. They're worried about career trajectory. You know, they don't really think through. I don't believe any of them devote the kind of serious attention to whether this is good for the national security that you would pick in your restaurant tonight or, or what car you might buy. I mean, you know, I just don't see it. Have it happening. You describe, you were talking about McCain. There's a Senator McCain that you describe in your book, and I'm wondering if there's a, if, if he's different from the one that is currently running for president because they don't seem to be the same person at all. Yeah, you know, first of all, I don't want to pretend I, know, I got all this stuff figured out. I'm constantly um, surprised by my own errors, you know, or maybe accept them. Uh, I think this is an ongoing process of reevaluation. And a journalist that I respect a great deal, Matt Welsh, who's now the editor of Reason magazine, and I guess he's of a libertarian bent. And I should be prejudiced against him, even though I, I've known him for years. And, but but uh, he was uh, working at the LA Times when they ended my column, and he was an editorial writer. <laughs> but I, I really like his work very much. And he wrote a, a very thoughtful book on McCain, on the myth of the maverick. And I've developed a more uh, critical view of McCain after reading that book and re researching and also obviously observing McCain's behavior as a candidate. So you have to raise some real questions about what drives this guy. However, when I was reporting this book, 
Uh, and it, uh, much to, I don't know about my surprise, but, you know, I found that McCain, at least on this particular weapon system, the mid-fuel air tanker, had done what we want a member of Congress to do. He'd done due diligence. He got the emails. He found that they'd slipped this damn thing into a, a, an appropriations bill. He and Warner, by the way, you know, who was chair of the committee. Uh, they found that they, they slipped us in in the middle of the night, you know, without hearings, without any investigation, and suddenly we're on the line for $100 billion up the road, you know, and, and he was uh, incensed, and, uh, and he really sounded the alarm against it, stopped the program cold, and this is what the Dems are, uh, Democrats are attacking him for now. You potentially lost jobs for Boeing in this country because Airbus is involved with, you know, Northrop in, in, in uh, developing the alternative plane, not that we need either plane. Uh, but, you know, here's the Democratic National Committee has uh, condemned uh, McCain for that. So uh, I don't know who the real McCain is. McCain, as senator, did some things that I think are very good. Uh, for one thing, I think he and, and uh, not I think, I mean, I know that he and Kerry led the fight for normalization of relations with Vietnam. And I happened to be in Vietnam when, around the time when Peterson, who was the congressman from Florida, who was another POW, was our first ambassador there. And, you know, I, I forget the exact year. I think it might have been, uh, when was it, 95 or something, I think. But, you know, amazing that it took, what, over 20 years to, to normalize relations with a country that you had tried to pound back into the Stone Age and killed millions of their people and spread them with dangerous, you know, Agent Orange and everything else. And instead of paying reparations, which we should have done, we're instead, you know, finally agreed to normalize, you know, have ambassadors. But that wouldn't have happened without McCain and Kerry leading the fight as two war veterans. And they had to overcome the opposition of the missing in action lobby, uh, you know, which was very strenuous. And they took their lumps. So McCain did the right thing there. He did the right thing, I think, in teaming up with uh, Russ Feingold, who I think is the far and away the best senator. Maybe, maybe Kennedy's better, but the two of them are quite great. And uh, Russ Feingold, who, uh, you know, on campaign finance reform, um, I give M McCain s not big points, but, you know, some, some points for not voting for the uh, constitutional ban on gay marriages. I mean, unfortunately, he's uh, not very good past that point. But, you know, he hasn't been really the, one of the worst social critics. I like the fact that he got Pat Robinson and Falwell all angry with him and that he exposed him in his first election. So McCain has done some good things, and I think on this military spending, he's actually watched the dollar and not been intimidated by uh, the pretended patriots and, you know, raised the right questions about what this has got to do with fighting terrorism and so forth. Now, he's contradicted a lot of that by embracing the Iraq war, which is, after all, the excuse for this big military budget buildup. And as a candidate, he's been uh, terrible on, on the very same issues. So he has reversed himself. So what else is new? One of the things that struck me was the way you describe the military being funded. It's kind of like Christmas. Um, with uh, When it's Christmas, you have to give Johnny and you have to give Jane the same present. You can't give Johnny more of a present than Jane. And it's the same kind of thing we have, our government has. Only Johnny and Jane are Lockheed Martin and McDonnell Douglas, and what we're giving them is $50 billion contracts for things we don't really need. Yeah, well, not only, well, they, they are the companies, the unions that represent the workers, the 
congressional delegations that have them in their district. And as Eisenhower pointed out, the tentacles of the military-industrial complex go into almost every district. That's by design. So you'll have a constituency uh, for these women. What is the big battle on this air tanker? It's the senators from Alabama against the senators uh, f- from uh, Washington uh, arguing about, you know, you're sending these jobs abroad. And this guy's in Alabama saying, no, it's going to be built here in Alabama. What are you talking about? You know, Airbus is going to build a plant here, you know. So, uh, you know, it has nothing to do with national security, whether we need these planes or, or anything else. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think uh, it's not uh, – it, it's Christmas. First of all, it's it's a very elite Christmas. Most of us are not getting any gifts at all. And in fact, there's a great deal of sacrifice to well, pay for Well, we're paying this. for the gifts. Yeah, yeah, we're paying for it. So uh, I guess we're, I don't know, are we all the children? I don't know if I like your analogy. But I mean, the fact is, you know, we're paying through the nose for this stuff. And, and you know, people are dying in Iraq, uh, Americans as well as many more Iraqis. So these foreign adventures, you know, cost us dearly, uh, um, not just financially. And th- th- it threatens to destabilize much larger areas of the world. I mean, I, I do believe that. Uh, you know, Rumsfeld saying that there were no good targets in Afghanistan. They wanted to invade Iraq because this was a, sh- a way to show shock and awe and the great display of firepower. And we have, oh, we have a real enemy there. We can use our planes and ships and everything. And, and then what do you do? You destabilize the whole region. You've now made Iran the major player in the Mideast. You had exactly the opposite consequence of what you claimed you were going to have. Maybe it was the consequence you really wanted to have. The oil never paid for it. You know, we know all, all that. And, and so... Uh, you know, uh, you have an even more reason for having a military buildup because now Iran may be a big threat, you know. And then some people even say China is going to be a threat, which is really the most absurd argument of all. I, I think I have a pretty good chapter on that. But, you know, it's, it's absolutely bizarre that the Chinese, uh, we're paying the Chinese for the interest on the money they lend us to build weapon systems. And then some people say those weapon systems are needed to, to counter weapon systems that the Chinese are not building but may be build. I mean, this is a, a scam of unbelievable proportions. And, you know, I, I mentioned in the uh, Pornography of Power book that, uh, you know, the Defense Department's latest study, which they were obligated to do by an act of Congress to survey the intelligence data and everything on the threat out there of China. And they said, you know, uh, China will take to the end of this decade, but really much longer, uh, to become a mid-level regional power. Uh, and their whole focus is on Taiwan. Now, you wouldn't know this from watching any of the cable or even reading many of the newspapers, but, you know, what happened in the last few weeks is that a love fest developed between Taiwan and China, totally undermining the Chinese are coming argument. This always happens on these sort of conservative right-wing talk shows, which actually is most of the, represents most of the talk shows. And, and, and you know, somebody says, well, of course, you know, you'll, you'll get these guys calling in, you know, colonels and commanders from the Navy and other things. Well, of course. Uh, this is not really important for fighting terrorists. Uh, but what about China? You know, and th- this is the argument Lieberman makes in defending the submarines that we must have because two of them are produced in, in Connecticut. And by the way, the engines for those tankers are also produced in Connecticut. So Lieberman's a big fan of those tanker air tankers, you know, Pratt and Whitney. But, uh, you know, the, uh, oh, the Chinese, Lieberman, straight face. The Chinese are building more modern subs. First of all, we had a huge submarine fleet. That was more than enough to uh, intimidate the Soviet Union. After all, our defense buildup was credited with the demise of the Soviet Union. So now we have to have new class of all these planes, a new you know, F-35, $300 billion uh, uh, fighter program, joint uh, uh, service fighter program. I mean, enormous 
money. I'm throwing these figures around, but you're talking about trillions of dollars, you know, and, and, and obligation all the way up the road, not just this year. You know, like this air tanker, I don't think it's even supposed to really become on, on, on you know, be in operation until the year uh, 20, you know, and then you'll be, keep building them. It's not like these things, you know, just get stopped because they're not needed. They're not needed to begin with. And so what, what the argument is they, with a straight face, that's how, I don't know how they do it with a straight face, but they'll invoke China, you know. Well, that argument has just been shot to hell by, uh, you know, the, the Guomindang, who after all fled mainland China for Taiwan. This was Chiang Kai-shek's party. They won this election. And by the way, they won the election against another candidate who also wanted warmer relations with the mainland in tai from Taiwan. But the Guomindang won because their guy was favor of even, you know, the, really a, a rapprochement with the mainland. The head of the Guomindang goes to mainland China. They talk about the new chapter of peace. Forget about war. It's not an option. The new leader of Taiwan has embraced it. Now there are going to be direct air flights to the mainland from Taiwan. Uh, there's an expansion of tourism. Taiwan is already the second largest investor in the mainland, Taiwanese businessmen. So the whole thing about China is going to go to war with Taiwan or anyone else is utter nonsense. And quite the opposite has happened. The Chinese are following a very old-fashioned capitalist model. You know, it's interesting. My book was criticized in a couple of places where it's been criticized. You know, he's very good on these weapon systems, but why does he bring in Israel or China? I bring in those things because the people defending, spending the money on the weapon system bring it in. You know, I mean, it's not my invention. You know, uh, the Chinese are coming, which is one of my chapters. The uh, idiot who reviewed my book in the Chronicle, I guess he probably thought he gave it a fairly positive, San Francisco Chronicle, but, you know, oh, sure is good as long as he's talking about these weapon systems, but why is he bringing in, you know, these other things? Well, because the people who want to defend these weapon systems say we, you know, has something to do with the survival of Israel or it has something to do with the menace of China. So you have to examine uh, the, these matters. And in the case of, of China, it's just an absolute absurdity, absolute absurdity. And, and the Chinese are following an old-fashioned capitalist model. You don't conquer land. You don't have to control the oil wells. You just make deals, and you pass on the cost to your consumer. And they're not even facing a recession right now. You know, and we who are guarding these oil wells, we've seen this fivefold increase in the price of, of oil, you know, and our economy is being wrecked by it. And, and, and what? We're paying for the guarding those lines and shipping lanes and everything. So we're following an outdated imperialist model, and the Chinese communists and the Vietnamese communists are fighting, following a very enlightened free trade, pro capitalist uh, marketing philosophy. But it doesn't stop. The well, reason I, I want to get this across to you, <laughs> to anybody listening to this, the real enemy we have is this uh, pretense of punditry, you know, this uh, pretense of profundity that, that we are subjected to from our earliest days in school, uh, that there are these sensible adults who really care about the stuff. And my, uh, the sad thing I've learned in the last 50 years of my adulthood uh, has been it's just not true. And I, I have to give you, uh, do we have time for this? Oh, absolutely. Okay, I'll give I you an example. Of this. I can let this run as long as I want okay, to. Okay, <laughs> uh, I'll give you an example uh, of this. Um, I, I belong to something called the Pacific, uh, what the hell is it called? Pacific Council on International Relations, which is the West Coast uh, sister of the Council of Foreign Relations, okay? Council of Foreign Relations has been this elite group. And what I tell people is when they let me in one of these groups, you know they're no longer elite, okay? So I, I, but I've been very patiently going to these meetings for oh, over 10 years now, certainly before 9-11. And, um, you know, the other day we had the ambassador to the UN come speak to us in L.A. And uh, I said the other day, it was actually about three weeks ago. 
And uh, he was the ambassador to Iraq, and he was the ambassador to Afghanistan. He's originally an Afghan. And uh, he gives his speech, and it's all always got these cute little anecdotes, and you know everybody, you know, and it's it's all fun and games, and it's all interesting. And then of course there's the use of the lingo about strategic purpose, and even throw in what we do is you know governed by a democratic society. That's supposed to be the big difference. See, we, our president's stupidities, our torture, our madness, our wasted lives. It's all done in the name of democracy, and so forth. So, uh, I, I, fortunately, I got called on. Uh, and uh, don't always, but uh, and I, I said, look, I mean, with, uh, I think I said with all due respect, I said you invoke this notion of democracy, but the basic idea of a democracy is an informed public. If it's not an informed public, the whole exercise is pointless. You know, it's like those women in Iraq holding up their purple fingers and gleefully voting for whom the Ayatollah tells them to vote for. That's hardly an exercise in democracy. So I said, you know, I've been coming to these meetings and everyone in this room, and we have a very distinguished people in this room. Warren Christopher is the head of our group. You know, we have CEOs, we have former ambassadors, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we're all people who really spend a lot of time, you know, that we, we don't have to go to the same kind of jobs that other people do. You know, we have time to read and go to libraries and, and so forth. And I said, you know, and so we are the group that should be particularly well-informed, you know, in this democracy. And yet if I were to base uh, my knowledge uh, of what's been going on since 9-11 on the basis of the people like yourself who come here from the government to talk to us, 95% of I, uh, what I would believe would be false, you know. And so I say, you're mocking democracy. It's a mockery of it, you know. And, and, and uh, we Always go, making friends, aren't you? Well, but I mean, the point is, why are we going along with this? What is the point of the exit? I was in a particularly bad mood because it took me almost an hour and a half of what's called surface transportation to get from downtown L.A. to the west side. So I was a, a bit irritated, and the food wasn't all that good. But still, my point was, you know, if we are kept in the dark and we're, we're willing to put in all these extra hours and we're supposedly well-connected and we get important speakers like you, and yet 95% of what we're told turns out to be nonsense, uh, you know, so what is, what's the hope of, of, of democracy? And is, aren't you really sabotaging it? And uh, so there's this movement of chairs in the room, and the next question is, of course, quite on a different point. But there was a woman uh, uh, in the room, uh, an attorney, one of the law firms, and she uh, had come prepared, and they made the mistake of calling on her. So she actually went through about 10 of these real lies from the administration. You know, boom, 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 boom. And again, this guy wiggled out, you know, the ambassador, you know, as well, you know, I'm leaving the administration or whatever, you know, and we have our we have our failings and our successes, and, and that was the end of it. And it was so interesting at the end of this meeting as everyone's breaking up, and, you know, a number of people came up to me and said, oh, it was good, good you made that point. Yeah, it was a very good point, you know, and everything. And I said to these people, but why, why don't you make these points? Why are we sitting here? And the answer is an obvious one. We're sitting there because we want to feel part of an elite. We're networking. There's the illusion of access to information. And, and in fact, it's a, it's a very, it's a wonderfully benign uh, way of, of uh, controlling people's minds. You know, pretending we're in the loop. Then we pretend to the people whom we influence that we're in the loop, if we're establishment journalists. You know, and the fact is we're not in the, any serious loop. And, and the guys coming to speak to us don't really want to be in a serious loop, and they don't really want to talk about it in any serious way. And what they're thinking about is their next career move, which is what he was thinking about. Where, what is he going to do? He's probably going to make a, a big fortune in the private sector now. You know? 
We've been speaking with Robert Scheer. His new book is The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijacked 9-11 and Weakened America. He's the editor-in-chief of truthdig.com. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thanks, sir. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.